And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Several weeks ago, I did a podcast on the ultimate buy and hold strategy. And I noted at that time that that is probably one of the most important pieces that I've done over the years because it makes a case, not really just from me, but from the academic community, uh, it makes a case as to why you would want to have a certain group of equity asset classes in the equity portion of your portfolio. Now, it also notes that you wouldn't have to own them all to do better than simply holding the S&P 500. In fact, I think if you look at the way I put that series together, it would make the case for simply adding U.S. large cap value, if that's what you wanted to do, and then small cap blend, and then small cap value. And every time we added another asset class, the return went up a small amount. But those small amounts amounted to a lot uh, by the time you got to the last portfolio, which included emerging markets. And then we added the implications of taking out all of the growth, well, you can't take it all out, but most of the growth, and focusing simply on value. Now, that then leaves a huge decision for investors, and that is uh, how much to put into fixed income along with the, um, uh, the equity to represent not only the opportunity for the return that you need, but also the risk you're willing to take. And my hope has always been that with the fine-tuning table that I'm going to discuss on this podcast, that it would be possible for an individual investor with or without the help of an investment advisor to figure out how much risk they need to take and how much risk they're willing to take and to understand the implications of different levels of equity exposure. Now, in this particular discussion of fine-tuning, I'm going to expand uh, what I did a year ago and the previous years from looking not just at the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy, which is this combination of U.S. and international 50-50, basically big and small 50-50, value and growth, more like 60% value, 40% growth, and um, some REITs and some emerging markets. That's what I've typically shown people as a the way to make this decision. But in this particular podcast, I'm going beyond that. I'm going to include the the implications of an all S&P 500. Because in some ways, that really is the, the first starting block because that's what people consider to be the market. And as we know, many of us know, uh, Warren Buffett has said that he has recommended to the trustees uh, that will be taking care of the investments for his surviving spouse that they put 90% in the S&P 500 and 10% in U.S. 
U.S. T-bills. So there are a lot of people, and I think John Bogle probably would be okay with an all S&P 500 equity exposure. So I want to look at that. And by the way, not just look at it here in this presentation about trying to figure out how much in stocks and bonds, but I want to take that into our discussion uh, in a couple of weeks when we talk about distributions, because I think that too is worthy of, a, of, a, of, a, of the importance of diversifying beyond the S&P 500. That, of course, now is for another day. But I will talk about the S&P 500 here. I will talk about the 50-50 traditional ultimate uh, buy and hold strategy. But I'm also going to talk about 70-30. Why 70? Well, first of all, what is 70? 70% U.S., 30% international. And why muddy the water and bring that into the discussion? Because I know a lot of people who have probably concluded that the the most exposure to internationals they want would be 20 or 30%. I think most investors have some, but I wanted you to see what are the implications if you decided not to use 50-50, but for reasons of bias, let's call it home bias, that you want to have more in the U.S. market. Let's let's take a look at what that suggests in terms of return and what it suggests in terms of risk. And then I want to take you even one step further. And I did cover this in an earlier podcast this year, but I want to do it here again. I want to talk about an all-value portfolio. And I want to talk about an all-value portfolio that is 50-50 U.S. international and 70-30, 70% U.S., 30% international. And I think, I think you're going to find something here uh, of interest, and that is the difference in return between 50-50 and 70-30 is not very much. Now, it doesn't mean it won't be a lot in the next 47 years. But it hasn't had much impact, much difference, a yeah, small difference in risk, yes, but but the return is close enough that you may be comfortable uh, with having 30% in internationals rather than 50. And I know the one I'm leaving out, and I'm just going to tell you right now, next year, I will address it. But the other one I'm leaving out here is an all-U.S., not just S&P 500, but the combination of large and small and value and growth. So let's look at, and I hope you have uh, access to looking at the fine-tuning tables as I go through this uh, presentation. Uh, I'm going to start, and there are, by the way, are links to uh, these pages uh, along with the information on the podcast on uh, at paulmerriman.com. I'm going to start by looking at the fine-tuning table that, that focuses only on the S&P 500 and different, different percentages of fixed income. And since we're starting with this one, let me make sure that you understand what's going on here. 
because you're going to face the same series of long columns of numbers uh, as we look at the other combinations. And all this is, is a look at the returns that you can't buy. You can only maybe mm, salivate over them if you look at it that way. Uh, from 1970 through 2016, from an all uh, fixed income portfolio, 100% bonds, to adding 10% increments of equities until over on the right, uh, you have the 100% S&P 500. And by the way, you'll notice there are two S&P 500 columns. One is, is, is the, to the far right is the index itself without any expenses. Uh, and the one right next to it takes out one-tenth of 1% a year out of these results. Now, in the tables later, we'll be taking out 1% a year. But I suspect that there's no reason for an individual to go hire a manager to simply sit in the S&P 500 and an intermediate-term bond fund, which is basically what this page is all about. And here are the lessons uh, for me that are important, and they're the same lessons on each of the pages that I'm going to discuss. As I look at the 100% bond portfolio, the first thing I can do is just take a look down that, uh, that particular column and notice we don't see any minuses until we get down to 1994 and there's a loss of 3.2%. Now, where does that loss come from? How is it possible something that guarantees a certain return can lose 3.2%? Well, in that particular year, even... With the payment of interest that is included here, even with the payment of interest, the value went down sufficiently to lose money for that year. doesn't mean that you won't get the, the, the par value at the time that the, the, the bond might, an individual bond would mature or that the fund would go back up. But if that's all you knew about this particular asset class was that one year, because interest rates were going up, bonds were going down, and so that was uh, that was not a good year for bonds. And uh, and by the way, you'll notice it wasn't a good year for uh, for almost anything because if you go all the way over to the right, you'll notice that the S and P five hundred. Uh, had a very small gain for the year. So it was a year that didn't do anything good for people except test their patience. But then you go down to 1999 and you'll notice another small loss and then all the way down to 2013 with another small loss. Well, you may not think of 3.6% as a small loss, but when you compare it to the kinds of losses that you'll see as we move across the page that those are those three losses are, are are small and you also see right after the year 2016 the annualized return of 7.1% for an all bond portfolio 
So when we think about how meaningful the past may or may not be, it's pretty obvious that today we'd have a hard time planning on getting 7.1% for the, for the next uh, period of time. Whether it's 10 years or 40 years, it just would not seem something to want to count on. And of course, the answer is we don't know. Then you see standard deviation. And standard deviation is simply a measure of, of volatility. And then if you want to just go right to kind of the bottom line of that number, the lower that number, the less the volatility. So if you looked at the standard deviation of the 100% bond portfolio of 4.1, and you went all the way across to the standard deviation of the S&P 500 of 15.2, you can see that an all-equity portfolio is way more risky in terms of volatility, four times as risky. And by the way, the returns compounded were more than four times as large. That's discussion for a later time. And then below that, you'll see the worst three months, six months, 12 months, the worst 36 months. Those are rolling months. They're not calendar year based. They're looking at every 36 months in a row during this period of 1970 through 2016. And you can see the worst 60 months was an annualized return of 1.1%. So you had a five-year period that... Um, did make 1.1% a year. Now, that's better than losing, but if you're taking out 3% or 4% a year, you're, 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 uh, you are losing in terms of, of principle that you have working for you. And then there's the worst drawdown. Now, drawdown is simply how far down, and this is computed on a monthly basis, but how far down did a particular investment go before it turned around and went back up to where it started the decline that led to that worst drawdown? And it wasn't huge. It was 4.7%. Now then, I want you to notice as we move across the table and we add some equities going to the next level of 10%, so 90% in bonds, 10% in equities, equities being the S&P 500 on this table. And you will see that you, 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 you still have some losing years. Hey, but notice 1994, that was a loss of 3.2%. Well, by adding equities, you actually reduced that particular loss to 2.7. And in 1999, when the bond lost the all bond a half a percent, the 10% equity actually was enough to bring it to a gain of 1.6. And finally, in 2013, you go from a 3.6% loss with the all fixed income to a loss of 0.4%. Well, that's interesting. By adding an asset class that doesn't always go up and down with bonds, in fact, it, it, they are very non-correlated, it actually maintained the same standard deviation of 4.1, and it raised the return by a half of 1%. 
Now, I've said many times, and I hope that, hope that most of you have read the article about the life-changing impact of an additional half of 1%. But here it is, and uh, all it took was an addition of 10% in equities to an all-otherwise bond portfolio. And the worst periods are very similar. In fact, the worst 60-month period, which had been a 1.1% compound rate of return over 60 months, was a 2.5 for the 10% in equities. So I have always said that people who think they should be all fixed income might want to put a slice, just one 10% slice of equities into their portfolio because the risk is, for all practical purposes, the same and the and the potential gain is significant. And you'll see that when we get to the distribution tables. Now, I'd like to jump over to the 50-50, and I want to compare the 50-50 strategy with the 100% S&P 500. Now, this return is is based uh, on a lump sum investment, uh, and the impact of that lump sum investment in the beginning of 1970 uh, through the end of 2016, no money added, no money taken out. Now, you're going to see later when we do get into distributions that it does matter in terms of when you put it in and when you take it out. But what you'll notice here, the return of the 50-50 over this particular period was 9% versus the S&P 500 of 10.2. So you've got about 90% of the S&P 500 return but you've cut the risk in half. And the standard deviation is 8.1 for the 50-50 strategy versus 15.2 for the S&P 500 all-equity portfolio. And if you look at all the kind of the worst periods, whether it's the worst month, the worst 6, 12, all of these bad periods, you'll notice that the pain, both the financial and emotional pain, if we can we can, can assume that when you're losing a ton of money versus only a half a ton, um, but it's it's a lot different for you know a marginal amount of additional return theoretically. Now, uh, how how come that's theoretical? Well, here's one thing we know about the long-term returns of a balanced portfolio. Yes, we expect it to make less than an all-equity portfolio when you talk theoretically, but what they find is balanced portfolios. Investors are able to, to stay longer and actually achieve the rate of return of that balanced portfolio much more easily than they can an all-equity portfolio. And I happen to know that during this particular period of time, 1970 to 2016, there were three cases where the market went down, I'm talking the stock market, over 50%. And so, you know, the implications of that is three times you had to hold your nose and stay the course 
Can you imagine there are a lot of people who probably wouldn't be able to do that? And I can tell you from my experience that most people, when actually asked about how much money they're willing to lose along the way through the process of investing for a lifetime, that number is no more than 20%. And by the time we get to age 65 and above, even the 20% is pushing the envelope. So this table gives you a chance to uh, take this, all these numbers, and, and I know they're overwhelming for a lot of people because they don't particularly like numbers, but there is a column that probably uh, fits your particular need for return and, uh, and your risk tolerance. Now, let me just say that for planning purposes, uh, I would suggest that you take 2% off of any of these columns. And that's probably closer to reality than what you see here. I only say that as a, as a means to get you to think more in terms of hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. And the fact is, there are other 40-year periods plus year periods that we've shown in studies that were much, much more profitable than what you see here. This was not the best of times. But it was, over, over the period, fairly normal in terms of the bottom line return. And, by the way, I think this will be important because we really want to struggle. Is it worth leaving the safety, relative safety, of the S&P 500? Now, we all know it's not safe. If, if it goes down over 50%, three times uh, over this period, we know it's not safe. But basically, there are companies we know, particularly the big 50 out of the 500. And uh, it's a country we know and trust, um, as opposed to having all your money overseas, like in Greece or something, you know, this is something people can can trust. But uh, but let's see if there's some way that we can challenge our trust. And here's what I want to look at here. I just want to note that with the uh, 50-50 strategy, uh, there were losing years, and uh, the losses were an average average of about six percent. There were nine of them uh, in the uh, 100% uh, equity. There were seven of them in the 50-50. And if you were 100% in equities, your average loss in those nine years was a little over 15%. If you were in the 50-50 uh, portfolio, half stocks, half bonds, there were seven losses and the average loss was about 6%. Uh, I also want to make the point, because I think it's a, it's a huge one, and I'll make this on the other tables as well, but notice how as you add another 10%, the return keeps going up. Notice that by the time you get to the, uh, the difference between 10% and 20%, it's only three-tenths of 1%. The difference between 30% and 40% is four-tenths of 1%. And then between uh, 30 and 40, it's four-tenths. Uh, 
and then it's three tenths, and then it's three tenths, and then it's two tenths, and then it's three tenths, and then it's two tenths, and then it's two tenths. So it improves each time. What you will find as you look at the other tables that there are some combinations uh, that that do when you add another 10% equity, it makes a bigger difference. So let's move on to the uh, second fine-tuning table, the one that's headed the ultimate buy-and-hold worldwide equity portfolio, 50% U.S., 50% international. Now, having spent so much time on that first table, I, I, I think at this table and the rest can go faster, okay? Because we know what we're looking at. We know that we're looking at the impact of everything from all bonds to all stocks. This time we've included a 1% management fee on every asset class we own in the portfolio, including the fixed income. And I've done that because we're getting more complex here, and I know that many people who look at my recommendations, the free recommendations at paulmerriman.com, the recommendations at Vanguard and Fidelity and T. Rowe Price and Schwab and TD Ameritrade, that by the time you put together a portfolio of big, small, value, growth, U.S. international, REITs, emerging markets, and then you're asked to rebalance it on a annual basis, it becomes a little overwhelming. So my sense is those people may find themselves hiring a manager to do this. I'm not saying that you have to, but I'm building that in because it's a possibility. And for those who don't hire a manager, well, then maybe you could do better than this. Let me just look at the bottom line numbers. First of all, notice that the S&P, there on the far right, the compound or the annualized return is 10.3, and the 50-50, 100% stock portfolio is 11.4. Life-changing, absolutely life-changing. I don't care if you're in uh, the accumulation stage or you're in retirement. An extra 1% is life-changing. Maybe not for you. You may decide you're going to live on the uh, and take money out of your portfolio that you're just going to meet the basics and you're not going to spend a lot of extra money because you have a big desire to leave money to either charities or children. Or maybe just because you're afraid, you're cautious, that the whole thing is going to collapse underneath you. And I don't blame people for feeling that way. I think it does to most of us from time to time. But there is an extra 1.1%, and that's a life changer, as I said. Now, if you go over to the far left and you look at the implications of adding the 10% each time, Notice that the difference between the 6.1 under the 100% bonds and the 6.7, um, 6.7, an additional 
six tenths, and then the next one is an additional six tenths, and then an, 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 an additional six tenths. The, but there's a bigger difference with every addition of another 10%. So if somebody said to me they were only going to put in 10%, I would like you to be able to pick up those extra two tenths of 1% by doing it with the broader, more broadly diversified. But let's look at the implications in terms of years where you made money or you lost. Remember, we had the S&P 500 before. It had nine losing years. Well, as we look at the worldwide, there are 10 losing years. So, in essence, there was a price to be paid for taking that additional risk and doing that extra work. As we know, there was an additional return. There's that premium for having taken more risk. But I'm not sure you would actually conclude that there's more risk because in those 10 years, the average loss was 12.6% versus with the nine years, it was 15.3%. So at the end of the period, the risk was really about the same. And the same is true uh, with the 50-50 strategy. Of course, you had fewer losing years, but the averages were very similar. So what we know is, is that there was a premium for taking more risk, but maybe you didn't actually take more risk. Now, now let's uh, move on to the fine-tuning table. That is the ultimate buy and hold worldwide equity portfolio, but is 70% U.S. and 30% international. Now, I'm not going to force you to go through all of these numbers with me again. I just want you to be able to see that the compound rate of return was the same with the worldwide strategy, 114 that it was with the 50-50. And that for all practical purposes, that the standard deviation, the volatility was the same. The worst drawdown, the worst 60 months, everything was about the same. Maybe a little worse, uh, a little more risk with the 70-30 combination because you don't have as much diversification. But it's a minor difference. And yet, if having 50% in internationals is going to reduce the risk a little bit in terms of standard deviation or a little bit in terms of uh, the, the compound worst compound rate of return over 60 months, but then you compare that to the emotional stress that you have when you find out there's some major thing going on internationally that you thought, oh, thank God that's not happening here. Guess I'm going to lose a bunch of money in my portfolio today because international stocks are surely going down. And of course, lots of, lots of times they don't go down as we think they're going to. But I, I just want to give you some peace of mind that you're not doing something stupid by having a smaller exposure to international. 
Now, it will be different. But will the difference change your lifestyle? Well, I don't think it's going to be a half a percent difference. I can start by saying that. So now let's then, and, and I, I want you to spend as much time as, you, as you're willing to looking at that table and comparing it to the, to the, uh, to the other tables. By the way, what I didn't spend uh, any time doing with you as I talked about these last two tables, in fact, let's go back to that 70% U.S., uh, 30% international. There are periods that the worldwide strategy, it doesn't matter 50-50 or 70-30, it just way underperforms the market, way underperforms. If you looked at the s when I say the market, I'm talking the S&P 500. If you look at that period of 1995 to 1998, the S&P 500, here are the four years in, in a row, up 37.6, up 23, up 33, up 28. How about with the worldwide strategy? Up 20, up 16, up 13, up 3. Now, how do you think you're feeling after that four years? Like you've been left behind and had a chance to make a ton of money in the S&P 500. This is the way it's always going to be. I don't care if you look at one asset class at a time or you look at your whole portfolio. Remember that bonds do better than stocks a lot of the time. You know, look at 73 and 74. Look at 1970. I mean, you could look at a lot of years that you would have been better off in bonds or CDs, and your spouse is reminding you of that. I mean, this is not an easy process. Now I want to go to fine-tuning table. The ultimate buy and hold all value equity portfolio 50-50. Now I'm not sure who to recommend this to. I can tell you I can tell you this from my experience. When I run into people, academics uh, with universities who have who started their career investing with TIAA CREF. And uh, they've done well. They would have done better elsewhere. But that does not matter. They lived it. And TIA-CREF got them where they are today. And the fact that Vanguard may have been better, it doesn't matter. They are comfortable where they are. That's the nature of investing. In fact, to take it to a whole other level, I run into people who have portfolios with stockbrokers, and honestly, they have no idea what rate of return that they've gotten, but they do know that the broker's done a very good job. And they're not going to take the time to compare it to something else because they're happy where they are. And I could say, well, wouldn't you like to leave more money to your kids? Wouldn't you like to spend more? Yeah, but Mr. Merriman, that's a sales pitch, because how can you know that? What makes you think that you'll do better than somebody who's worked for me for 30 years and we're friends? I mean, you know that feeling about something in your life 
where you do business with with people because you like them, not because you get the best deal, not because you end up with more money for charities and children. So here's where the all-value portfolio is going to work. I think it's going to work when somebody starts in their 20s and they're all equities and they're all value, big, small, U.S. international. And they do that into their 30s. And somebody says to them by the time they say they're 39 and they're talking to an advisor and the advisor is saying, you know, I think you should stay in all equities, but why don't we diversify over into that S&P 500, maybe over into some EFA. Uh, that's the large cap bland internationally. And that person might just say, you know what, I have ridden this all-value portfolio up and down for the last 20 years, and here's what I found out. I found out that When I'm losing money, it's just about the same as the people who were in those other portfolios. And in fact, in some years, I even did better, substantially better than the market. I mean, you can't imagine how rewarding that was emotionally to see. And then you might even remember in uh, 1974 when the S&P 500 was down 26.5%. And the all-value was up 8.2. Or 1977, when the S&P 500 was down 7.2, and the all-value was up 17. I mean, those are the best of times for an investor. And I look at that period 2000 through 2002, and, and you see that the S&P 500 lost 9, then 12, then 22, versus a loss of less than 1, and a gain of about 1, and a loss of 7 to 8%. I think that young person who's now, by the way, 40 is young to me, but that 40-year-old is going to say, you know something, maybe one of these days I'll be adding fixed income but I'm going to stay with this all-value portfolio. And at that all-value portfolio, and I look at this table now, and I look at the bottom line, I look at the annualized return, and I see that it was 12.1 versus 10.3 for the S&P. We're talking big, big difference in what you've got to spend and what you've got to land, and what you've got to give away. And what you need, of course, is the experience of many years to make that feel right. Now, here's a really big challenge. S, uh, the uh, Microsoft. After people saw Microsoft go up by thousands of percent, from 1986 to 2000, it's easy to understand how they could believe that it was going to continue to do that. And of course, for the next 16 plus years, it basically broke even. And so it's certainly possible that value will have some of that same problem along the way, but it's not going to be a boomer bust kind of difference.
because that 2% difference approximately between the S&P and value, it, it didn't come because value ever went up thousands of percent when the S&P 500 didn't. It came really kind of slow and steady, sometimes losing a little more like in the 2008, catastrophic year for a lot of people, but the S&P was down 37 and the all equity was down, I'm talking now, all value was down 43. And yes, you're going to have periods like there were some in the last 10 years where the where the uh, uh, S&P is actually up and the all value is down. Of course, you'll have those kind of periods. That's happened in the past. It'll happen again. But I also understand that if the 40-year-old stops being an all-value portfolio and starts being a worldwide balanced, so you're picking up growth, some, you're picking up some REITs, you're picking up some some other asset classes. But the bottom line is when you look at these numbers for hours and hours and weeks and months, what you'll see is that you don't have asset classes that just disappear. You have these asset classes that kind of become good for a while, then they become um, uh, disappointing for a while, and they they go back and forth, but the long-term trend has been up. It's just like when you see a mutual fund that has a five-star rating at Morningstar, it has had a five-star rating. It doesn't mean that it will be. But here's something else to notice with the all-value portfolio. Notice that the going from 100% bonds, the difference between that and 10% is seven-tenths of 1%. And then between 10% equity and 20% equity is seven-tenths of 1%. And then six-tenths, and then seven-tenths. And then six-tenths and six-tenths. And it's broader, it's wider than it is with the worldwide. So when you're mixing uh, the worldwide with an amount of fixed income, it means you're getting a, a better rate of return. So this is not a minor item, but when I look, for example, at the 60% return, 60% equities, 40% fixed income, and I'm looking at the all value, it's a 10% return. When I go back to the 50-50 worldwide, it was a 9.6% return. And when I look at the S&P 500 only, it was a 9.3% compound rate of return. So what that suggests is that in theory, to get the same return as you would with the other combinations, you could own less in equities. I mean, that's another way to look at it. Finding the lowest risk way to achieve the return that you either need or you want. Let me look at the last of these fine-tuning tables. And that is that the all-value 70-30 ends up with the 
highest return of all. Now it's 12.5% instead of 12.1. Well, there's almost a half of 1%. Um, it, it, it had eight losses, talking now about the, uh, about the all value with a 70-30, eight losses, averaging 13.9, versus the S&P 500 had, uh, let me just find it here, here it is, uh, nine losses of 15.3. Whoa. That's and, and a higher rate of return, substantially higher rate of return, over 2%. And don't forget, we took 1% a year out of there to have somebody manage it if that's what it takes to get it done. So the bottom line is, if I went back and looked at all of these tables, and I looked at the 100% equity and the 60-40, the range started at 10.3 and ended at 12.5. The range of standard deviation went from 14.6 to 15.7, virtually the same. The worst 12 months, now we've got a difference here. The S&P was down 43.3, the all-value down 52. Now, that's, that's a lot of difference, but it just happened one time. But the drawdown, the worst drawdown with the S&P 500 was 51, and the rest were around 58 to 60. When I look at the 60% equities, 40% fixed income, the compound rate of return ranges from 9.3 with the S&P 500 to 10.2 with the 70-30 all value. The standard deviation ranges from 9.4 with the S&P 500 to 9.6 for the worst of the other portfolios, virtually the same. The worst 12 months with the S&P 500 was a loss of 31.8 versus 34, approximately 33 to 34, or almost 35 with the other combinations. I mean, the bottom line is the risk factors are about the same on paper. And is there a difference between living through it and looking at it on a piece of paper? It's why I put these tables together, to give you the opportunity to pretend for a few minutes you put your money down and that's what had happened to it. And the reason that you can never recreate the real ride is because you know that at the end of the roller coaster you got off and you were alive. But sometimes when you're in the middle of that ride and you haven't reached the end, it feels like we're all going to die. <laughs> so I recently took a helicopter ride from Glenorchy in uh, New Zealand, uh, over the New Zealand Alps and down into Milford Sound. And uh, it was a love-hate relationship the whole way. I could see there was so little in between me and the end of my life. 
But of course, as a friend of mine said, what ma- what did it matter? There wasn't anything you could do. You couldn't do a market timing thing where you move out of equity into fixed income. You're stuck. Well, sometimes being stuck means you end up with a better result than when you have the chance to jump out and go someplace that feels safe. Well, I hope that even those of you who've heard me do this piece before found something there that was new and different. Uh, And I hope that you will, uh, in a couple weeks, uh, take the time, in fact, it may even be next week, to listen to the first of two discussions of distributions. The first will be on what we call fixed distributions, people who have saved enough to retire, but not extra. And then the second will be a podcast for people who have oversaved and can afford to take more out and can afford to take, theoretically, more risk. I look forward to those and many more, and I hope that these, uh, these long podcasts are somehow helping you be a better, stronger, and more profitable and enjoying it more as an investor. All the best. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.